Well, as we move into chapter 4 of the book of Esther, we come to the famous section, Perhaps you've come or attained royalty for such a time as this. And Esther really had to decide if she was going to trust in the Lord, if she was going to step up to save her people, if her faith was going to be bigger than her fear. And we all have to face that. And we all have to find the courage from the Lord and even within to do the right thing, to take a stand when it's time. We're going to explore that more today on Walking Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. Now, here's Pastor Michael. For the believer, there is such a thing as the right time and the right place. Sometimes you can reflect on your life and you could say, I was in the right place at the right time and that's why this happened. And sometimes we look at our lives, maybe when you're a little bit older, you, you can kind of look at different dots in your life and you can start connecting the dots, especially when you look back and you can see God's hand, but it's hard to see God's hand before something happens, it's easier to look back and see providence after the fact. We've all, most of you have read the book of Esther and you know how the story ends. You know she's brave and you know that God does his thing. But for Esther, she didn't know <laughs> the end of the story. And that's the hard part about walking by faith. That's the hard part about being brave is that we don't know, always know the end of the story. We hear about things like God's sovereignty and God's providence, and, and these can be theological realities for us, but when they hit real life, that's really where the test comes. Are we will, willing to walk out what we say we believe theologically? So the word providence is the word provide with N-C-E at the end, providence. You can see by the word, it has, it's a Latin word that has pro at the beginning. So pro can, if you're, uh, pro something, you're in favor of it. So pro is the idea of being in favor of or on behalf. Vide or vide in the last part of provide is a Latin word that means to see. So if you put it together, the idea is to see or uh, to be on behalf of and to see. Or the way that uh, one author put it is this way. He said in English, we might say, I'll see to that. Providence is God saying, I'll see to that. I'll make sure it happens. If you want a simple way to remember providence, just think about God guiding and providing. That's providence. God guides and he provides. But as we've mentioned in the book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned once in the book. And by the way, even though this chapter has implicit in it, implied in it, the idea of prayer, not once is the word prayer used. Not once is the word pray used. Not once is the word prayed used. Even though fasting is gonna come up and mourning and weeping and, and sackcloth and ashes, the word prayer is not used once. So Esther is a book, I think, for contemporary people in a contemporary culture to understand that there's real-life situations when we don't always have a prophet walk up to us and say, thus says the Lord, here's what you should do. We don't always have some sort of lightning bolt or angel or donkey that speaks to us on the road or whatever it may be, right? 
Sometimes the, the signs of life are not as obvious. Sometimes we can piece them together when we look back at providence, but we don't always see them when we're faced with a big situation. And the big situations can be a lot of things in life. Uh, this is from John Piper, and he's talking about this idea of providence, and he says, Theologically, there is a reason why seeing to means providing for. Remember the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, his son. Before they went up the mountain, Isaac said to his father, Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Genesis 22, 7. Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when God sh uh, had shown Abraham a ram caught in the thorns, Genesis 22:14 says, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Whenever it says provide, he goes on to say, in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word is see. Very simply, Abraham said to Isaac, God will see for himself the lamb. And in verse 14, the Lord will see. Why does God's seeing in Hebrew mean that he will provide? He goes on, he says, I think the deepest answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without his sustaining it. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he affects. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. When God sees, he sees too. His seeing is always with a view to doing. Where he patrols, he controls, close quote. That's a good way to think about providence, and it doesn't always make sense to me from my side of the equation, I have to admit, because I cannot always see God uh, guiding and providing. I have questions about God's will just like you do. But a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit is where it starts. An openness just to say, Lord, if you're a guiding God, then would you guide me? <laughs> would you guide me in the paths of righteousness for your namesake? Will you show me how to walk? Will you show me how to listen? Will you show me how to be sensitive to when I'm in a situation and someone just simply needs your love or a smile or a prayer? This is us saying, this is us responding to providence, amen? This is us saying, okay, if you are a guiding God, then I want to listen to where you would guide me. But you and I have to be open to that. You and I have to be praying about that. You and I have to say, I'm going to turn down some of the noise so that I can actually hear your voice and walk where you want me to walk and do what you want me to do and be brave when you've called me to be brave. Now, in Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, and all that had been done is recorded in the last three verses of the previous chapter. Let's take a peek so we can set the stage again. It says, Then the king's scribes, 312, were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. I've mentioned to you that's the day before Passover. And it, it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the question we asked was their fate sealed. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, 
and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So 11 months after the decree was, was given, this would be carried out, and to seize their possessions as plunder. The edict went out with a king's seal. All Jews were to be annihilated. A copy of the edict, 14, uh, to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. Now the camera pans to Mordecai, one of our heroes in the story, who learns all that had been done. What he had learned was just what we read. He had learned that Haman had hatched this plot. Horrible Haman had gone to the king and somehow he had gotten the king to give his signet ring and to put his official seal on an edict that all the Jews should die. And of course, we know that behind the story, we've been, we've been reading the, the backstory, and we know that Mordecai is Jewish, and we know that Esther is Jewish. But we know because of anti-Semitism on the rise, or whatever all the reasons are, the two of them, encouraged by her adoptive father or her older cousin Mordecai, Esther has not revealed her Jewishness. She has not made known that she is a Jewish woman. And Mordecai has been refusing to bow to Haman, and Haman's history is that he is an Agagite. Everybody remember Agagite? And an Agagite goes back to the Amalekites. And there was a king named Agag, and Saul refused to kill him. And even though he was killed, the Agagites still survived. And down through the ages, there was a man who decided that he was going to settle an ancient feud, and his name was Haman. And perhaps somehow he had found out about Mordecai's ancestry or the fact that he was Jewish. And when Mordecai heard this evil plan to kill and destroy all the people, you can imagine somebody first hearing about this in Nazi Germany in, in the not-so-distant past. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth, did Mordecai, and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Mordecai's response pictures his mourning and deep distress. He's doing things on the outside to try to picture how he feels on the inside. Camel's hair here um, to put on sackcloth was probably camel's hair, and it's coarse. And sometimes when you're going through difficulty emotionally, you feel a coarseness inside. It feels rough. It feels unsettled. And the, the camel's hair became a picture of how he felt on the inside, wearing it on the outside. Um, you can also see ashes. Ashes come from a fire, right? That which is burned. So I'm sure he felt burned, uh, burned by uh, Haman burned by emotional pain. Sometimes we feel burned by people and he tore his clothes. And another way to picture how you feel on the inside is you can feel torn up. These are all pictures of emotional pain. And in many uh, instances in scripture, there are stories of those who tore their clothes. For example, in Numbers 14.6, when the people said, we wanna go back to Egypt, Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. David in uh, 2 Samuel 1.11 tore his clothes when he, heard, when he learned of Abner's death. When he learned of the death of Amnon in 1331, he tore his clothes. 
uh, in, when Jerusalem was being threatened by the Assyrians and word came to Hezekiah, uh, there were two that came to him, I believe, here, and they tore their clothes when they heard the military leader of the Assyrians saying... You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. We understand that time can really get away from you. The day-to-day hustle can sometimes leave little time for the more important things in life, like Bible study. Remember that Pastor Michael's teachings can be heard at any time, day or night, on walkintruth.com. You don't have to worry that you have to get out of the car right now, because today's teaching is already online, ready for you to listen when it's most convenient for you. Visit walkintruth.com today to hear all the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. That's walkintruth.com. Now back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. David, in uh, 2 Samuel 1.11, tore his clothes when he, heard, when he learned of Abner's death. When he learned of the death of Amnon in 1331, he tore his clothes. Uh, and when Jerusalem was being threatened by the Assyrians and word came to Hezekiah, Uh, There were two that came to him, I believe, here, and they tore their clothes when they heard the military leader of the Assyrians saying, we're going to take your town. And even one commentator says, the Persians in Susa would have recognized the significance of Mordecai's behavior, for they too tore their clothes in grief when they were defeated by the Greeks at the Battle of uh, Salamis, close quote. And so this was kind of an ancient way to uh, express Uh, that you were wounded and in pain and in grief and in mourning. And it apparently spilled over to other cultures, including the Persian culture. And so Mordecai's in the middle of the street. And imagine how Mordecai feels because he knows that Haman has done what he's done because Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And so somewhere deep in his soul, he has to feel some personal responsibility, something like this. I couldn't imagine that it would ever come to this. Have you ever been in a situation where you have a personal issue with somebody? Maybe, you know, there's some unsettled dispute and all of a sudden it spills over into all these areas and you, th- you think to yourself, I had no idea this was going to be the ripple effect of this situation. Now, nowhere in the text is Mordecai blamed for not bowing. I think he did it for his own reasons, probably because he knew who Haman was. He knew he was an Agagite. He knew uh, that you know, he was a twisted, evil man, whatever his reasons were. But now, can you imagine being Mordecai and thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? They, they have issued a decree that all Jews die? Talk about what seems to be an overreaction, but we know there's something deeper working. And what's deeper that's working is an ancient feud and an ancient enemy named Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to... Do you believe that? He goes about seeking someone to literally drink you down. In fact, Jesus said to Peter that Satan's been demanding permission to sift you as wheat, Peter but I have prayed for you. Do you know that was right before Peter denied the Lord three times? Is that Jesus said to him, I'm warning you, Peter, this is real. And then he says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. You're gonna fall, but you're gonna recover. I'm gonna restore you. Some of you have fallen to the lion. You have been devoured in some way. You have been chewed on, and sometimes you feel like you've been spit out. 
but be of good cheer. Because there's a chance to be restored. There's a chance to start again. That's what happened for Peter. And it can happen for all of us. And so he went as far, Mordecai did, as the king's gate, verse 2, chapter 4. For no one was to enter the king's gate. This is the Persian king clothed in sackcloth. This may just be a matter of etiquette or that they didn't want any mourners going in there or the king was somehow isolated. But he could only go as far as the king's gate. And from this gate, he had previously uh, had some communication that he, had, he was able to get to Esther through the staff, through the Persian staff. He was able to check on her welfare and he was able to get messages to her about the plot that the two guys came up with to try to kill the king. So he was able to communicate, but it seems like he had to do it through other people. And so he did this from this area right outside the king's gate, right outside the, the royal court. You can check out chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 2, verse 22. And in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. You can imagine why with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. In every province, everywhere, where this decree had gone out into all the 127 provinces by the couriers, and it had been posted and delivered and talked about, everywhere you looked in the street in the provinces, there were Jews laying on sackcloth, in ashes, wailing, weeping, because they felt like their, their fate was sealed. There was a, an official decree from the king. They thought it was over. And so all they could do was cry out to God. They put on sackcloth. They put on ashes. But the word prayer is conspicuous by its absence. It doesn't say they prayed. I believe that it's implied that they prayed. I don't know how they couldn't have prayed, but it doesn't say that they prayed. And I suppose it's possible just for a moment to talk about the fact that we can go through the outward without having the reality. We can put on the right clothing, the right dress, show up at the right places. We can look spiritual, but maybe we fail to do the essential thing, which is to pray. And by the way, you don't have to do all that stuff to pray. You can pray without ceasing. You can be in constant communication with God. There are special times when you may feel like you need to fast, when you may feel like there's a more intense time to pray over a matter. But here, you can see that everybody's in anguish. Everybody's uh, crying out, sackcloth and ashes. Even in Jonah chapter 3, the Ninevites knew how to do this, to put on sackcloth and ashes and to cry out to God. They knew how to repent. Then Esther's maidens, four, and her eunuchs, she's the queen, remember, came and told her. And the queen writhed in great anguish. Now, to this point, I don't think the queen really knows what's going on. And remember, nobody would be quick to tell her because they didn't know that she was Jewish. And so she, in some way, may have been shielded or removed from these kinds of communications, but eventually the word came to her. And notice the queen's response. She began to writhe in great anguish. I read an author this week who was talking about Christians who have kind of stepped back in their Christian commitment. They're cut off from fellowship. They don't uh, spend a whole lot of time in Bible study. They don't go to church much. And so they're a little bit ignorant of the plight of Christians around the world or prayer needs of others in a fellowship because they're simply disconnected because their world has become uh, separate from the body of Christ. 
And the Bible teaches us that we are part of the body of Christ. And the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Uh, the eye can't say to the ear or to the nose or to the mouth, I have no need of you. But somehow we can, in the modern uh, way that we walk out our faith, it's easy to disconnect. It's easy, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about persecuted Christians in the Middle East. I don't want to hear about that. Because sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by the needs just in our own congregation, amen? How many of you are on the prayer chain for the church? Just raise up your hand right now. Okay, so you know what it's like, right? Uh, it just seems like every day there's another need, another person who's sick, another person who's struggling. And it can seem overwhelming until you know something important to remember. You are not running the universe. <laughs> he is. It's a good thing to remember. I had a pastor that I would see regularly in the gym. And sometimes we talk about pastor kind of things. And he, he would say to me, Pastor Michael, one thing I, I always try to remember is it's not my church. It's not my church. And I know people say, oh, that's Pastor so-and-so's church and that's Pastor so-and-so's church. No, it's really not. It's Jesus's church. <laughs> He's the good shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd under the chief shepherd, amen. And so uh, if I can remember that his shoulders are much bigger than mine, maybe I can... I can not bear unnecessary burdens. I can trust him even with all the prayer needs. But Esther was writhing in great anguish. The, the language could mean she was shocked, appalled, and she sent garments, notice, to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. He refused to take the garments of mourning off. Why do you think that Esther offered him a garment that would reflect normal dress. Well, there's all kinds of uh, conjecture. Some commentators say maybe it was because she was a little bit embarrassed or maybe it was because she, you know, somehow wanted to cover it up or whatever. That's simply conjecture. I don't think that's the case. I think you can answer it this way. Maybe it was for him to, to take off the garment of mourning and have access directly to her. So maybe it was just simply... She wanted to give him some normal clothing so he could come in and have a face-to-face -face conversation. That's possible. We don't have to live and die with it. But, but he refused it. He would not take off the garments of mourning. He would not put on normal garments. It was not a normal time. Jeremiah 31, 15 says these words. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Jeremiah 31, 15. Many of you who are Bible students know that that very verse is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter two after Herod kills the babies in Bethlehem two years and under. And that verse is quoted there by Matthew where Rachel, representing Israel, says, I, I will not receive your comfort right now. All I can do is cry. All I can do is mourn. I'm not going to act like life is normal right now because I'm mourning. And the Bible says there is a time for mourning and there's a time for dancing, right? There's a time to, to weep and a time to laugh. And, and there's, it's hard sometimes to know, you know, 
what does that look like? And is there a, a deadline for these kinds of things? Look, there's no perfect science to these kinds of things. But Israel, when someone died like Moses or Aaron, they mourned for 30 days and they kind of stopped everything and they went into a, a period of mourning. And, and so many times I think in American culture, we feel like people should just move on. <laughs> it's not that easy. And so we just have to give each other grace in those situations. Well, this is indeed a sad and heavy time in the story of Esther. You know, she herself is in agony. At the same time, she's trying to comfort a family member who raised her, Mordecai, and he will have none of it. It's just a heavy time. And sometimes we, we need to give mourning and sadness its day. There is a time for mourning and there's no formula. So if you're in mourning right now and you've been through a heavy time, give yourself some grace and hopefully we can all learn to give each other grace in these situations. Remember, you can listen to today's teaching and previous ones when you visit our website at walkintruth.com. I found in my own life that one of the greatest encouragements for me is the Word of God. So dive into the Word of God. If you're at a low point or wherever you're at, the Word of God will benefit your life. Well, I'd also like to remind you to get into fellowship this weekend. If you haven't already, we're not meant to go through these trials all alone. Even joyful times, we're to weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. And the only way we can do that is together in fellowship. If you're in Southern California, then I'd like to invite you to come visit us. I'd love to meet you if you're part of our listening family. Walkintruth.com is the place to go where you can find out the ministry behind this radio ministry, which is Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. When you visit walkintruth.com, just click on the About tab to learn more about our service times and our address. We do do a Wednesday night service and two Sunday morning services. It's all there for you at walkintruth.com. Also be sure to tune in on Monday when we continue the teaching in Esther chapter four called for such a time as this. Until then, have a great weekend. God bless you. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.